You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We now take our Bibles and read together two passages of God's Holy Word. The first is Proverbs chapter 5. My son... Pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insights that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she's bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich an other man's house. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets? Your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely doe, a graceful deer. May your breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline. Let us strive by his own great folly. The second passage we need to read this afternoon is Ephesians chapter 5. I read with you now the verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Whoever each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this afternoon the word of our God as we could read it from Proverbs and Ephesians. As it comes to us specifically in the seventh word of God's covenant with us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. What the Lord teaches us in this commandment, the church has Summarized in Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the hearts and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. And therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a marriage relation between husband and wife, the Lord God allows no room for a third party. Not everybody likes that. There are those who have been married for some time and end up disenchanted disenchanted with the experiences that they have in marriage and so look for excitement, fulfillment somewhere else. There's also those not married yet, healthy people, and find it frustrating that they need to wait for marriage and so seek satisfaction outside of marriage. And that's to say then too, perhaps, not with the person God may one day give. And all of it raises the question, why? Why does God say, husband and wife, that's it, there's no room for a third party? Why not explore 
an experiment and be satisfied. As it is, brothers and sisters, the Lord God has revealed who he is and created man to image God, to reflect what God is like. And that's true also in relation to the seventh commandment. God has given this particular command, you shall not commit adultery, because the Lord God wants his people created as they are in the image of God, recreated as they are in the image of God, to reflect what he is like. As God is faithful, so God wants his people to be faithful. I summarize the sermon this afternoon with this theme. God commands the Christian to be faithful to his neighbor as God is faithful to us in Christ. In developing that theme, I ask your attention for three points. First, why we are to be faithful. In the second place, what does faithfulness look like? And in third instance, who is able to be faithful? It was, brothers and sisters, at Mount Sinai that the Lord officially laid upon his people Israel the command not to commit adultery. The Lord introduced that command to the people by that preamble that stands on top of the Ten Commandments. I am, said God, from the top of the mountain to the people at the foot, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I am your God, said he to the people. Very well, what did the people at the foot of the mountain know about this God? There is, of course, much they knew about this God, but in relation to the seventh commandments, the material that they knew comes to us in Exodus chapter 2, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and follow along with me here. Exodus chapter 2, and there I read in verse 23, during that long period the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, the material of the last Two verses was not known to the people at the time. They groaned, verse 23, in their slavery and cried out. But God's reaction in heaven above was not known to them right away. What they did know and could know is recorded in Genesis 15, There God had said, Genesis 15, 
13, said God to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Well, the people of Exodus 2 knew that, and lo, it had happened as God had said. But, Genesis 15 verse 14, God continues, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. Well, now back to Exodus chapter 2. The people groaned in their slavery. And the passage now says in Exodus 2 that God heard their groaning. And what happens next, why the people of Israel receive one day a visit from a stranger. The man Moses, one of their own, gone for 40 years to the land of Midian, comes back. Chapter 4 of Exodus. And he says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 29, that all the elders of the people are to come together, and the Israelites too. And Moses, through Aaron, verse 30, told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And what was that? Well, that's the material of chapters 3 and 4. How God has heard the cry of the people, and he's going to keep the word that God had promised 400 years ago in Genesis chapter 15. It says, God, I have heard, and I am going to deliver. I'm going to redeem you from your bondage. And to underline the point, the Lord God calls Moses to do particular signs. And we understand the whole point of it. This God is faithful. He said, Israel would be slaves, and they were. God said, I'm going to deliver. Well, and now he's at it. And what happens next? Well, that's the material of chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and so on. And it ends up with the plagues and ultimately with the exodus as the people cross the Red Sea. They are delivered. And so we come to chapter 15. Exodus 15. The people on the other side of the river, of, of the Red Sea, they've been delivered. In their gratitude, they sing this song. Chapter 15. And what do they sing? Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider is hurled into the sea. The Lord's my strength and my song. And the song continues, a song of praise to this God who's delivered them. But look at verse 13. Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Your unfailing love. There's a reference to God's faithfulness. God does not fail. As he said 400 years ago he would do, so he in the fullness of time with his mighty arm actually did. That's your God, O people. And the Israelites understood it. God's unfailing love. 
And that gives confidence to what's ahead. And so they can say, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed, and you'll guide them to your holy dwelling. This is God. And then you come to chapter 20. God, on top of the mountain, spoke to the people at the foot the words of verse 1, of verse 2. And he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, just like I said 400 years ago I would. Just like I underlined to you through Moses I would do. Well, I've done it. You've been delivered. Here you are, Mount Sinai. Who am I? And the whole point is, God is faithful. His unfailing love is there. He's claimed this people for himself, and no matter the struggles of their lives, God's preserved them. God's kept his word Delivered, brought them to Mount Sinai. I, he says, am your God. And therefore, my people, you shall not commit adultery. Because I am faithful. You are to be faithful also. As I've kept my word, so you have to keep your word. Implication? At the foot of the mountain, listening to the voice of God speaking from on top of the mountain, were husbands and wives. What attitude was the husband at the foot of the mountain to have to his wife? He'd once pledged his allegiance to her, promised to be faithful, Says the Lord, now you must stay faithful. That husband, that wife, there is no room in your relationship for a third party. You are to be faithful as I am faithful to you. And suppose that husband or that wife chose not to be faithful. Committed adultery. Then what? Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Why? Because this is God's people. And this people Israel has the privilege to reflect what God is like. Well, is God unfaithful? 
Is he going to leave Israel and, and, and establish a part-time relation with the Moabites? Is that God? At stake is God's honor here, where a man and a wife are not faithful to each other, but permit a third party somehow in the relationship. God's not glorified. For the husband in Israel and the wife in Israel is to reflect what God is like. Yet, it's not just the married who are to reflect what God is like, but also those not married. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. At the foot of Mount Sinai were also young people, healthy young people, some courting, some not yet courting. And they knew the word of God as the Lord had revealed it back in Genesis chapter 2. There in paradise, God had created one man, just one and saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, and so God fashioned from his rib a woman, brought her to the man. And the man exalted, chapter 2, verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she's taken out of man. And then the Holy Spirit adds this particular commentary, Verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Now you'll notice that there's three actions caught in verse 24. The first action is a man will leave his father and mother. The second action is he'll be united to his wife. The third action is they too will become one flesh. There's three actions there in a particular order. Now that last phrase, they will become one flesh, is a reference to what? The two become married... They're united. Say the man is united to his wife, they come married. And so the two are no longer two, but one. They become one entity, one being. And that's also why, brothers and sisters, the scripture time and again catches the two of them with the one pronoun, the pronoun he. But okay, the two become one flesh. Do we understand that that phrase has in it the notion, too, of sexual unity. Now, why is that action the third of the three actions? What happens if you would make that the first of the three actions, or make it the second of the three actions? In other words, sexual activity before marriage. 
what happens? You have not done justice to God's created ordinance. God says, first comes leaving father and mother, second comes being united to your wife, and then you become one flesh. And that is why, back to Exodus chapter 20, the people at the foot of the mountain, if those young people were to turn that order back to front, then God had his word to say about it. Exodus 22. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. It's transgression of the seventh commandment, adultery. And then indeed the sentence is different than for married couples. For the two have not pledged allegiance to a spouse. And yet they have not reflected what God is like. The young couple, each young person, is to be faithful to the spouse God may one day give. And here this young couple is reaching forward. And not necessarily the couple, to, to the spouse God may give. And hence the sentence of God. His displeasure must marry, alternatively must pay the bride price. And what of those persons in Israel standing at the foot of the mountain who struggled with homosexuality, had homosexual leanings? What of those at the foot of the mountain who struggled with bestiality? Obviously those are perversions of God's created order. It's what the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 calls unnatural behavior. God in the beginning created one man and one woman, not two men, nor two women, but one man and one woman. And so God also pronounced his sentence upon those guilty of this form of adultery. Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus 20 verse 13. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. 
And the same with regards to bestiality. God said in the beginning, it's not good for the man to be alone, yet there was no helper for him from the world of animals. So God made a helper in Eve. And those who would disregard that creation ordinance, well, Leviticus 20, verse 15. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death and you must kill the animal. And 16, if a woman approaches an animal to sexual relations with it, kill both the woman and the animal. They must be put to death. The blood will be on their own heads. There's something detestable of that behavior. God abhors it. Why? And again, it does not reflect what God is like in any way. And hence, the death penalty. The Lord God, in his wisdom, created the gift of marriage. Genesis chapter 2. And with the gift of marriage gave a man to a woman, a woman to a man, and gave to the two of them the gift of sexuality. What then is the purpose of sex? For animals, procreation. Animals have no appetite out of season. For people, And I come back to the passage of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That comments of the Holy Spirit when Adam receives his wife, where the Holy Spirit says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. What's the purpose of sex? The Lord makes the two, the husband and the wife, to be one. And that unity, that oneness is demonstrated to each other in sexuality. Sex is communication. To say, I am yours. I am completely yours. I am only yours. And so there's no room for a third party. None at all. A third party in that relationship, is always adultery, is always unfaithfulness, and that never reflects what God is like. And now I need, brothers and sisters, to take this farther. Just what is God like? We've traced a bit of God's identity up to the moment of Mount Sinai. But the intriguing thing is that the prophets, and perhaps turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 3. The prophets describe God's relation to Israel as one of marriage. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 14. And this is just one instance I can mention for you numerous others. 
But verse 14 says, The Lord through the prophet return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. There's the language of marriage. Yet what has Israel, since God married her, and that's Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, when God made his covenant, what's Israel done since that moment of her existence? Well, time and again, the people of Israel gave themselves to harlotry, to prostitution. In what way? Why they went and served other gods. An example is Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Consider verse 11. The Israelites, once they had settled in the promised land, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around him. And verse 17, they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. We understand their service to other gods was spiritual adultery. But now the critical thing for this afternoon is, what was God's response? Was God's response, well, because you have committed adultery, I shall leave you, I am free from you, and I shall go and make a covenant with the Moabites? or some other nation on the far side of the the globe? The intriguing thing, congregation, is that God never did that. Despite the adultery of his people, the Lord remained faithful to his people. In the tabernacle, the sacrifices continued to burn. Always the gospel of redemption was proclaimed. The animal dies instead of the people. Always God remained faithful. He continued to supply his people with their needs, both physical and spiritual, cause the word to go to his bride time and time again to the various prophets. And in the fullness of time he sent his only son, that this son might die on the cross on behalf of the people, in place of the people. Their unfaithfulness should be placed on Jesus' shoulders, and so Jesus be rejected by God. And on the cross he was rejected, yet paid for sin. And so was received again by the Father in order there might be forgiveness for the people of Israel, the people of God, the bride of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. Marvel, my brothers, marvel, my sisters, at who your God is so faithful. And so our second point 
What does faithfulness look like? We have some sense now of what faithfulness in God looks like. What does God want faithfulness in our lives, in our marriages concretely to look like? And then we can say, well, God wants no adultery. Yes. And God does not want anyone before marriage to reach forward into a marriage state. True. Yet congregation, we can, we can say far more about what faithfulness is to look like. And again, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 2. There's this one man in the Garden of Eden. And as he awakes from his deep sleep, he sees God coming. And with God, a woman. And what's the man's reaction? Verse 22, verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's called the first marriage song. Yes. And here's a bridegroom congregation that's ecstatic. It's excited. Enthusiastic about the bride he's receiving. This is bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. He breaks out into song. What's faithfulness in marriage look like? Enthusiasm for the spouse. These two, Adam and Eve, become one flesh by God's ordinance. And it's something Adam delights in. The same sense of enthusiasm comes out in the psalm we just sang. Psalm 45. As I mentioned before, it says on top of the psalm, this is a wedding song. The first part has to do with the bridegroom, and the second part has to do with the bride. We'll pick up the psalm at verse 10, where the bride is addressed. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the singer says this to the bride, verse 10, Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Leave behind the home in which you were raised. Leave father and mother. Forget your people and your father's house and delight in your bridegroom. Why? Well, verse 11, the king The bridegroom is enthralled by your beauty. So honor him, for he is your Lord. Look at that. The king's enthralled by his, by your beauty. 
It's a wedding song. And so, indeed, it catches the beauty the king sees in his bride when he marries her. And yet it's a song that's meant to be sung in Israel, not limited to just the marriage nights. That sense of enthrallment, that sense of enthusiasm in the bride, in each other, it's meant to, to remain in the course of the years of one's marriage. Delight in each other. Even as God delights in his bride, the church, of the Old Testament of the New Testament. Proverbs chapter 5, another passage. We read it. What's faithfulness look like? Simply limited to stay away from the adulteress? Well, yes, that's part of it, for sure. But there's more. There's also verse 15. Drink water from your own sister. Running water from your own well. A reference to marriage. Indeed, verse 19, a lovely doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Again, there's that sense of enthrallment with one another, delighting in each other. Never mind the passage of time and the things that time can do to one's body and to one's sense of novelty. Says the Lord, keep on delighting. I can draw your attention to the Song of Solomon, but there's too much there. Perhaps read that at home, as married couple together. But another passage we should look at is the one we read from Ephesians chapter 5. What does faithfulness look like? There's the instruction of verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Is it hard? And the answer lies to large degree in verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's what Christ did. Went to the cross emptied himself totally for the sake of the bride. That's love. That's faithfulness to the spouse. And so the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, verse 28, in the same way, just as Christ emptied himself, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He loves his wife, loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. And who do you think is meant by the phrase, his own body, in verse 29? That's not a reference to the man's body. That's his wife. Because the two are one. She is his body. As he is hers. Well, care. Empty self for the sake of the other as Christ has done for the church. Went to the cross. And as Christ continues to do for the church, does he not still serve the church or his place in heaven? Intercede for his own, direct the history of the world for the good of the church? What does faithfulness in marriage look like? Well, congregation, that's what it looks like. Serving the other. Emptying the self for the other. Delighting in the other. And that is why you have your Bibles open still at Ephesians 5. That is why the Apostle says what he says in Ephesians 5 verse 3. What's he say? Among you, he says to the saints of Ephesus, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. To speak in lewd terms of marriage, of sexuality, such a common thing in our culture, And the Lord says, no, faithful to each other. In that comes out, that faithfulness, in how you speak of each other, of how you speak about marriage, of how you speak about sexuality. It's a delightful gift. Let the marriage bed says the apostles of the Hebrews, be undefiled also in your language. And not just in your language, but the way you dress. One can dress in such a way as to draw attention to one's body. You can also dress in such a way that attention is not drawn to the body. Yet what is God's ordinance? The body is for the spouse and not for the public. What does faithfulness in marriage look like? In how you dress. Dressing in such a way that it's clear I draw no attention to my body. That's for my loved one. My other half. Faithfulness. It involves to that you guard your eyes. What do you see? What do you let yourself see? 
Our day, there's so much you can see. Pornography. And it perverts so much. What is God's will? Faithful to each other. In marriage, before marriage, after marriage. Faithful as God is faithful. And that brings us to our last point. Who, oh who, is able to be faithful? Given the culture in which we live, given the hormones we have, is it possible to be faithful as God is faithful? And we say, we fall so short even to look at a woman and lust for her, says Jesus is sin. Who dares to say then that we're without sin here? But here, beloved of the Lord, is the gospel of the Lord. He gave his son, such is his faithfulness. He gave his son that there might be forgiveness for sin for all our sins. Sins too against the seventh commandments. Forgiveness. Because of who God is. Turn with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There was so much perversion in Corinth, so much of sex. The place was known for its rampant sexuality. But the gospel came to Corinth. People were changed. And what does the apostle say? Chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, and the list goes on, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, says the apostle to these Christians of Corinth. That's what some of you were. He doesn't say... That's what some of you are. Because people repentance of sin are forgiven. Sin and changed. Look at verse 11. That's what some of you were. But you were washed of your sins. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These Christians... Once adulterers, once homosexuals, once sexually immoral, are washed clean of their sin and so justified in the eyes of God. And not just washed clean of their sin in Christ's blood, but changed also through Christ's spirits. And so, 
They're a new people. Are they able now to be faithful? Yes. Yes. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit. He's been poured out abundantly on Pentecost, so live by the Spirit and, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And what are the desires of the sinful nature? Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. And the list goes on. But you've received the Spirit. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. Is Patience with one another in holy wedlock and outside. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Can you be faithful? Yes. For the Spirit's been poured out, poured out abundantly. And so the child of God can be faithful as God is faithful. As a matter of fact... The child of God receives to the gift, verse 23, of self-control. Does that mean we're past all struggles? Oh no, I can will what is right, says Paul, but I can't do it, wretch man that I am. And so it looks forward to the last day when Christ comes again. But meanwhile, the child of God can believe, may believe, must believe, I am changed. The Spirit has made His home in my heart. I'm a temple of the Spirit. And so I can be faithful as God is faithful. The Lord our God, brothers and sisters, but you and me, older and younger in this country, And here we may reflect what God is like. Yes, in our marriages too. Reflect what God is like. The neighbors can see God's faithful. It's written in the conduct and the words of those Christians. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.